Tonight we're continuing our study on Christ in the Old Testament. We're currently in the last third of our study. We're working our way through the various categories of Christ symbolized in what is biblically, biblically termed types and shadows, um, the symbolic elements of the Old Testament that point in, in specific different ways to Christ. Uh, we're currently focused on, we've, we've covered Old Testament things that symbolize Christ, structures, events, and we're currently focused on the great Old Testament roles that point to the role of Christ in his fulfillment of God's plans and purposes in salvation. And um, we started with the, um, with the three primary roles, which are prophet, priest, and king. And last Thursday, we focused on Christ uh, symbolized by uh, Old Testament prophets and one, one main prophet in particular, which was Moses, compared the role of Moses to the role of Christ. And so tonight what we're going to do is look at the second of the three primary roles, which is the priesthood of Christ as symbolized. And each one of these three is, is uh, connected to one specific Old Testament character. Uh, in this case, it would be, of course, the first high priest uh, by God's appointment, who was Aaron. So um, the idea being that um, with these, um, we're, we're, not, um, we're not expecting a perfect symbolism. What I mean by that is that each one of these characters, Moses, Aaron, and when we get to King next time, we'll be looking at King David, um, while they do adequately and effectively represent Christ in the way that God intended, um, they each one fall short in a perfect representation of Christ. So what we're going to do for each one of these three, just like we did for Moses, is we'll look at the actual role that God intended to, to point to Christ, and then we'll look at the exceptions at the end, which have to do with in what ways did this particular character fall short of perfectly representing Christ. So for, um, for this particular role, the high priest, let's start in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, uh, we studied this particular passage. Uh, I, I'm just going to quickly read through three uh, Hebrews passages. We studied this in detail. It's a long time ago when we went through the book of Hebrews on, on uh, Thursday night, so this will be worthwhile to briefly revisit. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, then we'll look in chapter 4, and then in chapter 6, and then we're going to jump over to 1 Timothy 2. I just want to read these four passages, and then we'll start detailing uh, the specifics of the role of the high priest. So Hebrews 3, 1, Paul writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Uh, then uh, jumping over to chapter 4, and we'll look just at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
Then one last passage in chapter 6 from Hebrews verse 20 where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then one passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this, this passage doesn't use the specific terminology of high priest, um, something that is not uh, maybe commonly known, but the, the association of Christ with the role of the high priest is only specifically identified in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But the core element or the, the main principle that is... Uh, in operation in the role of the high priest is here identified without the name in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and then, of course, fulfilled in Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. High priest is, in essence, a role of mediation. It's a role in which God has appointed in the Old Testament specific human beings to stand between himself and his people, representing the concerns of the people to the Lord and representing the concerns of the Lord to the people. Uh, here, the specific terminology in the Timothy passage is mediator, which just highlights not so much the title of the work of the high priest, but more focuses on what the high priest is actually accomplishing in his role. He's standing between the Lord and his people. So what is it that the high priest as a mediator was concerned to accomplish? What was his assignment? What were the things, the main and primary things that the Lord would have him to do? I'm going to, I'm going to highlight four specific aspects or elements of the high priest's role. This is true in the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. First and foremost, the single most important thing is that the high priest in the Old Testament was assigned by the Lord to make atonement for the sins of the covenant people on the great day on the spiritual calendar that God gave to Israel in the law of Moses, one day out of the 360 days in their calendar of the year, um, the Lord appointed for the high priest and only the high priest to offer a specific sacrifice at the altar outside of the tabernacle of the Lord in later generations outside the temple of the Lord, and then taking the, um, the blood that was gathered from that animal that was sacrificed in a, in a specific and special basin to hold that blood, he was to carry that blood through the outer room of the Lord's house, which was called the holy place, and then he was allowed on that day and only on that day and only if he was holding that basin filled with blood from that sacrificed animal, he was allowed to pass through the curtain that separated the two rooms in God's house, the holy place from the holy of holies, the holy of holies, of course, being the innermost room. 
And he would enter into that Holy of Holies and there's a single item of furniture you remember in the Holy of Holies, which was the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was an earthly symbol and representation of the throne of God in heaven. And he was to dip a, a, a branch from a specific tree called the hyssop and he was to dip it in the blood and using it as an, an instrument, he was to then sprinkle or splatter some of the blood from the sacrificed animal onto the, um, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And in doing so, effectively made atonement for the sins of the people. Um, what was critically important was blood was required if the high priest, even though he was in the, the great role of being the high priest of God's people, um, if he were to dare to pass through that curtain and to stand before the Ark of the Covenant without that basin of blood and without sprinkling it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, um, he would not survive the experience. And so there's this, this very ancient tradition that um, the high priest, the, the other priest would, as the high priest was about to enter into the, the Holy of Holies, they would uh, tie a cord to his ankle, if you can imagine, so that as he enters into the Holy of Holies, he is tethered to the, the other priests that are waiting in the holy place just outside that curtain. Why would you imagine they would tie a cord and tether him to themselves standing outside the room while he's gone into beyond the curtain into the Holy of Holies. The idea being that if, if he was unsuccessful in offering atonement, if he failed, if he did not fulfill the specific and special requirements of the Lord in the law of Moses, and if the Lord reacted to his presence in offense, because he was there in rebellion or disobedience, then uh, they expected that the high priest would die in that situation. We know from um, the, the most ancient history, the, even the sons of Aaron himself, the first and great high priest appointed by the Lord for the people of God, uh, they once dared to offer sacrifice and incense before the Lord in a way that the Lord had not ordained. And fire broke out from the Ark of the Covenant, from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died. So if the high priest were to die in the Holy of Holies, how are the other priests going to reclaim his body for burial? Uh, if, if they went through the curtain themselves to get the body, then all of a sudden bodies are going to start piling up in the Holy of Holies, and no one's going to make it out alive. So they would tie this cord to his ankle, and if he were to fall in the presence of the Lord um, under the judgment of the Lord, then they would just, you know, they would tell by the, the nature of what's going on with the cord, and then they would just, uh, together as a team, they would pull his body out using the cord so that they didn't have to transgress into the holiest of holies themselves. So what that simply emphasizes and highlights is the critical importance of everything being done according to God's ordination and God's order and everything being done, especially with the presence of the high priest offering the blood that the Lord required. 
Without the blood, there is no atonement for sin, as we're told in the book of Leviticus. And it emphasizes in the high priest's role the exclusive nature of true salvation, meaning that the Lord was essentially saying this is the one way that was provided under the, under the guidelines of the old covenant. This is the one way for the sins of the people to be resolved in the presence of the Lord. And there was no other way for that to happen. And uh, of course, uh, this all pointing to the exclusive nature of the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross. And then as we're told later in the book of Hebrews, and we did again study this in detail together, um, Christ took the, uh, the benefits and the, um, the blessings of what he had accomplished on the cross and brought them into the presence in his ascension of the, of the Father God in heaven, and his sacrifice was accepted as a, um, as a final and complete sacrifice, and as a result, uh, the uh, atonement that he provided and exclusively and only he could provide was then, um, was then uh, demonstrated in the presence of the Lord at the throne of God and um, remains there uh, for our benefit forever. Now, the second thing that the Old Testament high priest did, and we'll look at a specific passage for this, um, is he offered intercession for the people in sacrifices, multiple sacrifices and prayers. So the first one was focused on one specific day and one specific sacrifice, which was, as you look at the sacrificial system and later when we get to uh, one of our seven categories of the types and shadows, we're going to look at Christ uh, represented in various categories of God's law. And we will look more specifically at the sacrificial system. But out of the various sacrifices that God ordained and required of his people, uh, one sacrifice rises in significance above all others because it most specifically points in, in, the, most, um, in the most complete way to the work of Christ on the cross. But all of the various sacrifices point to different elements and aspects of what is accomplished on the cross for us. And the high priest was involved in more than just the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So uh, let's look first at um, Leviticus chapter 9. And this is going to be focused on the role of Aaron. Um, of course, he was alive at the time that Leviticus was first given to the people as the first and great high priest. So the sacrifices that were offered, the Day of Atonement being the most important, but they also included um, sacrifices like the sin offering, the burn offering, the peace offering, uh, and, and when we get, as I said, when we get into the study of the various um, sacrifices ordained in God's law, um, I will, I'll detail the difference of, you know, what's the distinction between sin offering, burn offering, peace offering, day of atonement offering. But um, the second part of what the high priest did, along with the sacrifices, was that he offered uh, prayers on behalf of the people. And those prayers... Uh, took the form of what we would call blessings. So we're going to look at uh, the first high priest, Aaron, blessing the people in prayer. 
So this is in chapter 9, and I'll start reading from verse 22. And I should read actually from, just to get the context here of the offering that's just been offered by Aaron. Um, I'll start reading in verse 18. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. This is now outside uh, in the courtyard. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, that, that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands. And so the idea here and the connection between what we just read and what I'm about to read is that a specific sacrifice has been offered. It's been completed. The Lord is pleased with the offering. And now as a result or a a spiritual outcome of the offering that's just occurred, Aaron lifts up his hands and he's about to pronounce uh, what should be familiar for most of us. Uh, it's a famous blessing. He lifts up his hands toward the people now and he offers a blessing for their benefit. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and burnt offering and the peace offering and peace offerings, uh, plural. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they, this is now Moses functioning as prophet, Aaron functioning as high priest, they came out and they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. This is a special appearance of the Lord in this moment because this was the first time that the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings were ever offered in the history of God's covenant interaction with his people, the very first time. And so he appeared in order to make it obvious and clear to the people his reaction or his response to these offerings. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord, not to consume Aaron or his sons in this case, but to consume the offering. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So what we see here is that the second aspect of the high priest's ministry was offering intercession on behalf of the people in offering multiple sacrifices. And then the outcome of those sacrifices as they're accepted by the Father and as he is pleased with them, is an expression from the Lord himself, uh, kind of a, a display of his glory in his presence, and then a verbal blessing offered first by Aaron and then in um, conjunction with Moses, offered by both Moses and Aaron. Now, uh, that blessing is detailed in other places in Scripture where Aaron is essentially saying, may the Lord's face shine upon you as God's holy people. We'll read that in just a moment. Now, turn over, if you would, to the New Testament. And we'll look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. What we're looking for here is 
New Testament correlation and fulfillment of this principle. And there's multiple passages that do so, but I chose this one because of the specific wording of what I'm calling the outcome of the accepted sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were multiple. That's not because the Lord, through those symbols of the sacrifices, was pointing forward to the new covenant need for multiple sacrifices. In the new covenant, how many sacrifices are offered for the sake of our salvation? One and only one, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So why are there, and we'll get into more detail about this when we get to the sacrificial study, the sacrificial system study, but why were there multiple old covenant sacrifices as symbols if there's only one sacrifice in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? It's, it's not because the multiplicity points to the need for repeated sacrifice in the New. It's because there was so much that was accomplished in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that the Lord chose multiple sacrifices in the Old Testament in order to highlight different aspects or elements of what the cross accomplished for us. And then flowing from the cross, what blessing is the heavenly high priest providing for his people like Aaron after finishing the sacrifices and only after finishing the sacrifices stands before the people of God, the assembled congregation of God's holy people, Israel, and then he lifts his hands toward them and he pronounces this blessing upon them. Here in Ephesians 1, we have a correspondence and, and a fulfillment. And as is the case with all the symbols, the fulfillment is greater than what we saw in the old covenant that pointed to Christ. And that would be the case here as well. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, meaning in Christ and only in Christ, exclusively in Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the emphasis here that Paul's making, and, and this is a direct correspondence to the blessing that Aaron offered to the people, or for the sake of the people. I want you to think of heaven in this context. This is not all that heaven is about, of course. But I want you to think of heaven as the ultimate repository of God's blessings that he has accumulated and saved up for his chosen covenant people. Think of heaven as like a like, uh, I, I guess, although it's not much, so much in focus in our society any longer. How many of you are familiar, though, with Fort Knox? Some of the older ones more so than some of the younger ones. When I was growing up, Fort Knox was a big thing. It's kind of lost its luster, it seems like. But uh, Fort Knox, if you're not familiar with it, is, I think it's in Kentucky. Uh, I think it's in Kentucky. It's a, it's a military fort. But it's a, a fort that has a unique and special purpose. It's the repository for the accumulated and saved gold bullion of the United States government. And so uh, no one knows, 
I, I don't even think the government knows, uh, how much bullion, how much physical hard gold is actually there. But originally, in the purpose of building Fort Knox and then filling its vaults with gold, uh, it was the greatest storehouse of physical gold that had ever existed in all of human history, maybe only rivaled by King Solomon during the height of King Solomon's reign and how much gold he had accumulated. But probably there was even more than Solomon because just there was so much more gold that had been mined in our generations than in the days of Solomon. So think of that gold in Fort Knox as like the accumulated wealth of the United States of America. Now think of heaven corresponding to Fort Knox as an accumulation of the saved blessings of the Lord that he intends to bless his people with. Why saved blessings? Because in the old covenant, God only portioned out some as like what I could call a spiritual appetizer of his blessings for his people. He did distinguish Israel from all of the other nations of the earth and bless them more than he blessed any other nation. But Israel, as true as they were as the chosen and holy nation of the Lord among all of the, the unsaved, un, the outside of the covenant nations, they never received even a, um, a generous portion of what the new covenant holy nation of God's people have now received. So God throughout the old covenant was saving up specific and special blessings that he intended to pour upon, pour upon his new covenant holy nation. And now what Paul declares, and it's one of the most amazing single verses anywhere in God's word in Ephesians 1.3, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ, not will bless us with a future experience, though there are future blessings waiting for us in the, in the glorification of our bodies, the, the redemption of our bodies, the, the great resurrection that's waiting for us on the day that the Lord returns. But here he has, it's, it's a verb tense that emphasizes it's already occurred. He's already done this. He's done it in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're the recipient of this now, not just waiting for it in the future. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's like he's opened the vault of Fort Knox and he has loaded upon us the entire saved wealth of his blessings. That's accomplished for one reason only, and that's because Christ offered the ultimate sacrifice. And all of these blessings in Ephesians 1.3 are tied to that sacrifice on the cross. And for those, and only those, again, it's exclusive, only those who believe that Christ died for their sins on the cross experience this blessing and have it loaded upon them. Whether you feel this blessed or not, it's a spiritual reality that's, that's understood and apprehended by saving faith. Now, there's another element of the uh, intercessory work of the high priest, and this is the blessing I was referring to earlier. Let's go back now to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. 
And this is the specific wording that Aaron would use when following the sacrifices being accomplished, offered in obedience to the Lord's intention. He would then face the people, lift his hands and pronounce this as a blessing upon them. Chapter six, I'll start reading in verse 22. This is instructions the Lord gave to Moses about what specifically Aaron was to say. So we know and understand that when Aaron would offer this blessing in the role of high priest, he wasn't just making up stuff on the fly that occurred to him in that moment, but these were, this was a specific script, so to speak, that the Lord wanted him to follow in his pronouncement of the Lord's blessings following the sacrifices being completed. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. The reason for the sons here is it's one of the sons of Aaron that would then eventually, when Aaron's time in this world came to an end, it would be one of the sons of Aaron who would replace him as the next high priest. Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and this is the script of the blessing, so to speak, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, in terms of a correspondence to Christ, but with Christ, the, the, uh, the fulfillment is greater than what the symbol of the Old Testament portrayed. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to focus on one particular element of the blessing. And that was Aaron pronouncing, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And then here, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, and all the way through uh, chapter 3, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a description that builds up to what I'm about to read in chapter 4. Uh, so in your own time, you might, want to, uh, you might want to refresh your understanding of that. But let's just read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, for what we proclaim, and this is the, the new covenant proclamation of the gospel that he's referring to. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the emphasis in Aaron's blessing was on a prayer of intercession. May the Lord, which at the moment that he's proclaiming those words, the implication is it hasn't happened yet. He's asking for the Lord to approach his people and to in close proximity of covenant relationship with his people to cause the glory that can only emanate from the person and presence of the Lord to shine upon the people. May his face shine upon you. But notice here in verse 6, 
the difference between Old Covenant anticipation of the high priest's blessing and prayer for that to happen, and now in the New Testament, the fulfillment of it happening in the fullness of what God always intended. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. So in the Old Testament, it was a prayer. Lord, please draw close to your people and from the outside in a close physical proximity to your people, let them catch a glimpse of your glory, cause your face, the glory that emanates from your face to shine upon them. But where is the shining of the glory of the face of the Lord happening in this passage? Has shown in our hearts. And it's not anticipatory. Anticipatory is as Aaron pronounced the blessing. May your face shine upon your people. Here it's fulfillment language. You have caused the glory of God, Paul is describing, to shine in, not from the outside in close proximity to your people, but on the interior, on the inside of the people of God, you have caused or you've made your light to shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And here the association is with, and this is the distinction again between Aaron and Christ as high priest. The high priest Aaron could only cry out for the Lord to come close to shine from the exterior upon the people of God. But here Christ as a heavenly high priest has entered into the hearts of his saved people and he's shining from the inside out the fullness of his glory that's found exclusively in the face of Jesus Christ. Not a physical face now, but a spiritual face shining with favor within the hearts of the people of God. All right, let's look at another one. This, this element of the high priest's work should be more familiar to us because we've studied this concept more than once as a church, and that is the high priest had, yes, the great responsibility of offering sacrifices for the people, and especially the Day of Atonement sacrifice, and yes, he had the responsibility of pronouncing blessing on the people, interceding for them in that work, but he also had a practical daily job. Do you remember what the high priest's practical daily job was? Yeah, he was to enter in every day after he got dressed, in, and we'll talk about his dressing in just a moment, but after he got dressed in the way that the Lord ordained, he was to enter into first in the days of Aaron, the tabernacle of the Lord, later in the, in the days of Solomon, in the temple of the Lord, and he was to enter not so much the inner room, because the inner room was only to be entered on the day of atonement, but he was to enter the outer room of God's house, the holy place where there were three items of furniture, one of which was the lampstand, the only light source in the house of the Lord. And the high priest was to tend the lampstand. And he did so by, there were two aspects of his daily responsibilities. One aspect was he was, as, as you know, the lampstand was a, a stand upon which there were seven lamps set. And the lamps were to be, the lampstand was oriented on one of the long walls of the, the house of the Lord. And the lamps were to be oriented so that the most of the light shone directly on the space in front of it, which functioned 
as kind of a spotlight on the opposite wall, the opposite wall being the, the table of showbread and there being um, representation of the work of Christ in the bread, that, the, the fresh bread that was baked on a, on a daily basis, 12 loaves representing one loaf for each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Aaron had this daily job. He was to come in and he was to, he was to take each one of the seven lamps that were on the lampstand and remove them. They were just resting upon the lampstand. He was to remove them and check their condition. And the two things he was to check was what's the oil level because these were oil lamps and oil being, of course, the fuel for burning. And without any oil, there's no light in the house of the Lord. And so if, if they needed, and of course on a daily basis they would need this, uh, he would fill the lamps with oil. And then having filled the lamps with oil, he was also to check the wicks uh, that were dipped in the oil and lit on fire in order to shine light in the, in the house of the Lord. And he was to trim the wicks to trim away any dead or consumed portion of the wick. All right, so with that, turn, if you would, to, with that background of what Aaron did, let's turn to Revelation 1, familiar territory, and focused on the role of Christ. And the Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation is, of course, a, a series, a sequence of heavenly visions that the Lord gave to John about great events that were soon to unfold in the days that John himself would observe and witness. And the very first vision he was given was in a sense the greatest of all of them because he was given a vision of the Lord himself. And as the Lord appeared to him, he chose to appear to, to John in a specific format. He chose to appear to John in a specific way that would be recognizable and familiar to John and then, of course, John was to write in this record that we have as the book of Revelation. He was to write about his experience so that we could gain the same insight that he gained. How, what format, and how did Jesus choose to appear to John? Well, of course, he's resurrected, and more than resurrected, he's ascended. He is the ascended Lord, the, the glorious, the fully glorious ascended Lord. But he appears to John in the format of a high priest. He appears to him as the heavenly high priest, as the fulfillment of what Aaron could only point forward to and symbolize. So let's, let's read the description here. We'll start in verse 10. I was in the spirit. This is John writing about his experience. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, he doesn't see the one that's the source of the voice first. He sees what? Seven golden lampstands. So right now we have tabernacle, and later in history, Old Covenant history, temple imagery. John is seeing a vision. He's not physically in Jerusalem where the tabernacle and later the temple was established. He was physically on the island of Patmos just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. 
He was in a Roman prison as he was observing these things. But in his vision, he sees lampstands, plural, not just a singular one, but multiple, seven of them. And in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, verse 13, one, he sees one like a son of man. That's, that's an obvious reference for us. Um, I think we're all familiar with the idea that, that Jesus chose specific old covenant designations for the Messiah and associated himself with them. His most, his most favored one, his most commonly chosen self-designation from the Old Testament prophecies is son of man. So um, here... John sees one like a son of man. He's seen Christ. This is the resurrected and ascended and glorified Christ. But what he notices about him is his clothing. And there's a reason for that because the high priest, and this is what we're going to get to in just a moment, the high priest wore special clothing by God's determination. Clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery, and this is the Lord himself explaining some of what John has just seen. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and then this exp explanation for us, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in the Old Covenant, the high priest Aaron was given the responsibility to tend the physical lampstand in the house of the Lord. Christ is revealing himself in this first vision of the book of Revelation as a heavenly high priest. And he's making clear to John that his heavenly responsibilities are similar but greater than the responsibilities that the earthly high priest Aaron was responsible to maintain. Now let's read on to the very next verse now in chapter 2. One other detail added by the Lord. To the angel in the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So why does the Lord identify himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands? He is carrying out his responsibility to tend to those lampstands. The difference being that in the old covenant, it was just physical lamps and physical lampstands in the New Covenant, the Lord as high priest is responsible to tend to a greater responsibility because the lampstands now are revealed in their fullness. The Old Covenant lampstand is just a symbol. The New Covenant lampstand 
is each individual true church that the Lord appoints and ordains to represent him on earth and what we're primarily responsible to do in our representation of the Lord is show the light of the Lord in the circumstance in which he plants us or places us. And of course, it wasn't just that the high priest tended the lampstand. He really was focused on tending to what? The lamps upon the lampstand. So the lampstand is a singular church in the symbolism and the individual lamps placed upon the lampstand are the individual believers. So here the Lord showing himself as the great high priest, the heavenly high priest, who is visiting individual true churches, but in doing so, visiting each individual believer within those churches, filling what is lacking in their supply of heavenly oil, so to speak, filling them with his spirit in a fresh way, and then trimming away from them anything that's hindering the full expression of his light trimming the wick in our life. And so um, we see this role of the high priest fulfilled in Christ. All right, the last element that I wanted to focus on is the actual then clothing of the high priest. Let's look back in the book of Exodus. Chapter 28. Starting first with Aaron, before we see how this is fulfilled in Christ. We'll read the first three verses of Exodus 28. This is the Lord speaking to Moses about the high priest. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Now it goes on from verse 3 and beyond. Uh, just for the sake of our time, I just don't have time to get into all the details of the specific elements of the garments of the high priest. But we have kind of a summary in verse 2 of what all of these individual aspects of the special garment. The garment as a whole was called the ephod, and um, it has very specific elements connected to it. I'll just, I'll just give one, I'll give two as an example real quick, uh, not from reading the text, but just kind of summarizing the, the, the point of these special garments. Um, there were to be two special stones that were set, uh, not so much stones, but like settings for stones we'll say it that way, on the shoulders of the high priest. And then upon those settings were individual stones set in those settings, 12 on each, or excuse me, it might have been six on each shoulder. You'll have to, you'll have to double, double check me, but a total of 12. And the idea being that uh, those, those stones that were set there were precious stones, special stones, and they were to represent 
the, the tribes of Israel, the people of Israel. So why, why is there a remembrance in the high priest's garment of the sh on the shoulders of the high priest? What do we normally associate with our shoulders, for instance? Yeah, we, we bear burdens on our shoulders. So as the high priest would come into the presence of the Lord, he was carrying on his shoulders because he's bearing the needs of the people as his unique and special burden into the presence of God himself, representing the needs of the people and the concerns of the Lord for the people upon his shoulders. Also, there was a special breast piece, and that breast piece was also like a, a, a golden setting, and there were 12 precious stones that were set on this breast piece. And the breast piece was to be placed right here on the chest, the midsection of the high priest. And so he had this, each one of the stones being a different precious stone representing each one of the 12 tribes. And as he would come into the presence of God, he was bearing upon his chest a second remembrance of the people. Why upon his chest? because this is an association with the heart of the Lord. So as he's coming into the presence of God, he's bearing upon his shoulders as a burden and upon his heart as a, a true and deep concern, the needs of the people in the presence of the Lord. So all of these summed up, all of the, and there's other details. There's a special headdress that he was to wear, a special uh, nameplate, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, there was a, a little say, saying that was, that was uh, engraved upon that nameplate, holy to the Lord. Um, there were various aspects, specific sandals. You know, everything about his garments served a specific symbolic function. But all of it in summary is found in verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Okay, so why glory? What, what, what's the emphasis on glory? The emphasis on glory is that Aaron can only symbolically point forward to a greater fulfillment that's waiting in redemptive history. That greater fulfillment and when Christ entered into the fullness of his high priest role is when having risen from the dead, he then ascended into the presence of God in heaven itself to, to come before the throne of God representing as the one mediator between God and man so that it's only in the ascended glorification of Christ that the role of the high priest finds its ultimate fulfillment. And then for beauty, because the garments were to be attractive. They were to represent the various aspects of the nature and character of the Lord in specific expression through the role of the high priest. And as the people were to look at Aaron, they were to, they were to be impressed by no one else in Israel wore garments as beautiful as the garments of the high priest. His beauty was above any other beauty that was in expression in their society and in their culture because there is, of course, no natural human beauty that can compare with the beauty of the ascended and glorified Lord. All right, so those are the four main aspects of the role of the high priest, offering sacrifice for the people, offering intercession and sacrifices and prayers, 
tending the lampstand and then representing the Lord's glory and beauty in his special clothing. What are the exceptions? And we'll take just a, a couple of minutes. I'll go through five main exceptions. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but it represents, and I, I think you'll understand as we go through it real quickly, um, in what way did Aaron fall short? The role of Aaron as high priest, in what way did that fall short of the fullness of what we see in Christ? First and foremost, uh, Aaron served as high priest in an earthly tabernacle. As great as the role was that Aaron had and appointed to, to his service and his ministry to the Lord, he could not reach heaven and the fullness of the concerns of the Lord in heaven. He could only represent the Lord on earth. This is, of course, and I'll just give you one passage for each one of these five principles. This is um, expressed for us in one of the passages we read to start tonight. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest, referencing Christ, of course. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus serves as the ultimate high priest, but he serves in a different, an essentially different kind of tabernacle, a heavenly one rather than an earthly one that Aaron was limited to. Second, um, this one should be obvious, but uh, how, how, how perfect was Aaron's track record as high priest? Um, definitely not perfect. His greatest failure, of course, was in the golden calf incident. We don't have time to turn and read it, but you know the story that Moses being on the summit of Mount Sinai, receiving in the presence of the Lord, in the glory cloud of the Lord, receiving from the Lord the the um, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, and the instructions, the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle before Moses could even get down the mountain to deliver these revelations to the people of God. Aaron's down at the foot of the mountain with the people. Um, it wasn't his idea, but he went along with it and he allowed himself to be uh, persuaded by them. And he, he was the one who made the golden calf an idolatrous expression uh, that the people were worshiping and calling their God uh, as Moses arrives down at the camp. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 contrasts that, of course, with the role of Christ. Uh, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is distinguishing Christ as high priest from Aaron as though serving the Lord's purpose, a sinful high priest, uh, Christ is our sinless high priest. Third element uh, where Aaron fell short, Aaron, um, in the fullness of his ministry, was a Levitical high priest. Christ is a high priest of a completely different kind, a completely different order. Hebrews tells us he's a Melchizedek high priest rather than a Levitical high priest. You know, Christ was not born of the tribe of Levi. He was born of the tribe of Judah. So he was not qualified, actually, to serve as an earthly high priest in the Old Covenant. Had Christ lived 
during the days of Aaron, he would not have served as high priest because he was not a Levite, as both Moses and Aaron were. But when Christ serves as a high priest, God, what the Lord did was he ordained a new and higher category of high priesthood and associated it with this mysterious old covenant figure, Melchizedek, which is a royal high priest, a high priest that's greater in the sense that, number one, um, Aaron served only as high priest, not as king. Christ serves as both king and priest, so he is a royal high priest. And uh, in Hebrew, and I won't turn there and read this, in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, for those who are taking notes, we see that Christ, as Paul describes, continues forever as high priest. Aaron, because he was an earthly high priest, he lived his life in this world, he died, his high priesthood came to an end. Christ as a Melchizedekian high priest, he serves forever in the presence of the Lord. And as a result, in chapter seven of Hebrews, it's emphasized that he ever lives to make intercession for us. All right, a fourth aspect distinguishing Christ and Aaron. Aaron offered an annual temporary atonement for the people on the day of atonement via the agency of animal sacrifice and the blood gathered from those animals. This one I will read, Hebrews 9. I'll read verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, the heavenly holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Aaron's day of atonement offering was temporary in the sense that it had to be repeated annually every single year. Um, if they skipped a year, then for that year, the people's sins were not resolved in the presence of the Lord. Not that they ever did skip a year, but uh, at least uh, at this point in Israel's history. And so uh, Christ, when he offered his sacrifice, offered a sacrifice that was not limited in its power and efficacy to a single year on the calendar, but because it was his own sinless blood that he offered uh, as sacrifice, therefore uh, his, the, uh, the value and the benefits of that sacrifice last forever. And then finally, this is going back to Hebrews 1 now, Aaron, when he served, and I've mentioned this detail before, and it's not an insignificant one, he served in a specific posture. Aaron went in on a daily basis by the Lord's assignment into the tabernacle to, to carry out his responsibilities. And we saw in the imagery that he walked you know, around in the, in the tabernacle doing the various responsibilities that he had. But what was the posture that he maintained always when he was in the house of the Lord? He was always standing. Yeah. Never once was he allowed to take a break, just, you know, get off your feet, have a seat. There were no seats in the outer room of the tabernacle. Uh, there was a table, but there were no seats at the table. 
And in the inner room, there was a seat, but only one seat, and it was an exclusive seat, kind of like uh, uh, there are some who have special chairs in their homes that belong exclusively to them. And if you go to visit in their home, they might say, oh, would you mind sitting over here? That's my seat. Um, there's one exclusive seat in the house of God, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And who was allowed to sit there? And only that one was allowed to sit there. That was for the representation of God's own presence because it corresponds to the throne of God in heaven. So even on the Day of Atonement, when the Lord would have Aaron enter the holiest of holies, he was allowed to approach the seat, but he was never, ever, ever allowed to sit on it. Can you imagine what would have happened to Aaron had he sat down on the Ark of the Covenant? He would have instantly uh, been judged by the Lord. So uh, in Hebrews 1, and we'll end with this tonight, in verse 1, Paul starts his book this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is the, the, the spotlight on that portion so far on the role of Christ as prophet. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Christ, his son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, meaning after dying on the cross, then, of course, rising from the dead and ascending back to heaven. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this begins... His, his heavenly ministry to the covenant people of God, but for the first time in history, as Christ returned to heaven and sat down upon the throne of God, for the first time, the high priest was allowed to sit down on the job. Why? Because Aaron's role, a standing role, a walking role, never a sitting role, was always pointing forward to this is just a temporary provision. The work is not finished. You can't sit down until the work is finished. Christ finished the job with his sacrifice on the cross and he sat down signifying the work is forever complete. All right, so we'll end our study there tonight. Lord willing, next time we'll pick up with a consideration of the old covenant portrayal of Christ as king primarily through the life of King David.